Welcome to All Power to Developing, a podcast of the Eastside Institute, where social justice, human development, and community building come together. This is where you will meet activists, artists, teachers, scholars, helpers, and healers who are bringing creativity, hope, and possibility to individuals and communities all over the world. everyone, and welcome to All Power to the Developing. I'm Marion Rich, a faculty member of the Eastside Institute, and I'm so pleased to be your host today, along with my esteemed guest, friend, and colleague, Don Wisenen. Hi, Marion. Hi, Don. (laughs) So great to have you here. And I wanted to tell everybody a little bit about you uh, before they formally meet you. Uh, Don is a professor in the Baruch College of the City University of New York Marks School of Public and International Affairs here in New York City. He's been researching, teaching, and consulting in public communications for nearly two decades. Don frequently conducts leadership communication workshops and coaching for organizations all over the tri-state area here in the US of A for our international listeners. In Los Angeles and New York, he trained and performed in improvisation and sketch comedy with the Groundlings, Upright Citizens Brigade, the People's Improv Theater and Comedy Sports Theaters. And Don is a cast member of the National Comedy Theater in New York City. He is the author of six books, including his latest book, which we're going to talk about today, Improv for Democracy, How to Bridge Differences and Develop the Communication and Leadership Skills Our World Needs. Don is the founder and president of Communication Upward, as well as an adjunct lecturer at Columbia University and New York University. Don received a PhD in communications from the University of California's Annenberg School. I can't tell you how excited I am to introduce people to Don. Uh, Don and I met through the Applied Improvisation Network a few years ago, And I think we'd both say that we immediately realized a shared passion for both improvisation and democracy. So again, (laughs) oh yes, Um, we're raring to go. So um, meet Don, everybody. Um, Let's start with a question. I guess that's the thing you do, right? Either way, we could go any which way you want here, Mary. <laughs> That's right. We're improvisers. That's right. Um, after all. But I did mention that you're a professor of communication at Baruch. Uh, that's the business-oriented college of the City University of New York. I noticed you teach courses with names like communication in public settings, management cons- uh, communication, media, politics, and public communication. And you've been an improvisational performer for years. So perhaps a good place to start is, tell us a little bit about these two aspects of your life, teaching, performing, improvisation. How did they come together? And what do you understand about their relationship? Sure. These were these were separate worlds for a long time for me for a number of different reasons. And they finally came together. And the way that I like to put it is it's really nice in life when your vocation and your avocation uh, completely merge in some capacity. So I had grown up watching Whose Line Is It Anyway, the British version in Great Britain, uh, because my mom was an actress in Scotland for a number of years. And uh, she got homesick at a certain point. We went over there and overstayed our welcome, I think, in the country. We meant to be there for a year, ended up being eight years. So I grew up over there and I was watching shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway in British theater. And uh, my mom was a performer. So always had that 
acting bug. And when I watched when I, when I used to watch Whose Line Is It Anyway, I would say to myself, "How do they do that? That's amazing, right?" I just these these people performing beyond their capacities. It seems so. I it was very exciting to me, and I uh, but I went on and went on an, on an academic path. And when I was in graduate school at USC, I was studying communication. I've been obsessed with this subject for a long time. I think human beings get into almost all of their problems through communication, but they also get out of them through communication. And it's true, we we didn't create infectious diseases, we didn't create natural disasters, but we did create our responses to those things, right? And so uh, I, I see communication really at the center as the central subject for this day and age. And that that's really driven a lot of my work. At the same time, academics, academics tend to be very it's a cognitive space. It's a it's a world where it's it's writing and words and very textual. And while I was doing grad school uh, at USC in Los Angeles, I went, you know, I need to I need to go. There's the whole other side of this subject for communication, which is performative. It's about the body. It's about emotions. It's about people in the social world as well. So off I went and just signed up for classes at the Groundlings and. Uh, you know, what started as basically a fun hobby and an adjunct to my work became absolutely central to it. I went, wow, this is, I'm, I'm learning as much about communication through those spaces as I am in these academic spaces where there's a lot of theory and books and journal articles and things like that. And eventually I just went, wow. Uh, as I progressed in my academic career, I, went, I have to completely join these things together. They go together hand in hand. What I didn't know at the time was that my interest in political communication, um, I, I had done an internship fellowship program called Coro. Uh, there's a center in New York, but I did the one in LA almost 20 years ago now. And in that fellowship program, your job, it's an internship where you, you're put in different spaces, right? Really different social worlds. I worked on a political campaign for a month, worked at a, a business for a month, worked at a labor union for a month. And the goal of that was to break beyond just the way that we get, we, human beings get into very fixed spaces and fixed ways of being. And the goal of that fellowship was to say, rise above that and try to get a bird's eye view of what's going on in our political life and our social worlds, uh, ask questions constantly. And I had a year of that experience. And, and after that, I went, uh, you know, I, I, I was still doing classes at the Groundlings, things like that. Uh, I started, I started getting these I would just say flickers, ignitions of improv has something to do with all of this, right? Uh, it, it's the public affairs is not rule bound. It's not this rational, as as rational and ordered and bureaucratic a world as fields like public administration may make it seem. So. Uh, that, that was really the germination of this. And just over time, you know, even leading to our conversation several years ago, I went, wow, uh, we need a better theory or conceptualization of improv in our public life. Um, I saw all these developments afoot that improv was being applied in the business world and in science and healthcare. And I went, wow, we really need this probably more than anything for our political worlds. Uh, so we can talk a lot more about that, but that was really the beginnings of this. Great. Oh, there's so much here. Um, I mean, one thing is I've been in the classroom with Don. He invited me to be a guest teacher uh, with him two times now. And it's just delightful to see how you play with your students. Um, I, I consider myself a play revolutionary. So bringing play into the classroom is so awesome. They're and desperate for it. They're so desperate for it. Can we just underscore that? Yes, students let's. in classrooms, K through 12, higher education, they are desperate for more playful, more involved more uh, inclusive and engaging approaches to education than what they've been offered. It, it's, it's stunning. It's, it's not a hard sell, right? And I like to say, and yeah. I know we're gonna talk a little bit about this, but um, I like to say that a big, a big outgrowth of Improv for Democracy as a project is just to support the wealth of research and practice out there around active learning how yeah. people actually learn and develop, right? And so I, I tell my students 
straight up. It's we're going to make we're going to put you in an experience, whatever we're going to talk about, whatever concepts, whatever theories you have to experience it first with your mind, with your body, right, with the involvement of other people in interaction in relationships, you're going to experience it first, and then we'll intellectualize about it. And so much of education reverses that order. It's all about knowing first, and then, you know, you'll have the practical applications later. We've gotten it backwards. Uh, So anyways, we'll talk further about that. Yeah, well, that's, of course, the joy of being an improviser. We, you and I, and many, many, many others call ourselves improvisers. And of course, each and every human being on the earth today, before us and after us, are also improvisers. That's right. And I find what you're saying very interesting as both kinds of improviser on the stage and uh, in life on all the stages we create. This notion of a better theory of improv in our public life. Yeah. And I was thinking that you and I met through the applied improvisation. I think you touched a little bit on what that means and perhaps you can weave that in, Don. But before we unpack what it would mean to have this better theory and practice, even more importantly, probably, of improv in public life, I thought it would be helpful to our listeners to share a little bit about What do we mean when we say applied improvisation? You probably have some sense from Don talking about the classroom, but I was thinking about you as a scholar of the communications process. You speak about communication with such passion. What is improv able to do as a tool, as a method in communication that others listening might not realize. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it is the whole uh, other half of the equation of a planning and strategy mentality, which is rife throughout education. It, yeah, I, I have a class I do on improv for leadership with executive MBA students, and I always ask, who's had a class on strategy? Everybody puts their hands up, oh, planning, planning, order, order. And they say, who's had a class on managing the unexpected? No one. I say, how much of your daily life is managing the unexpected? And they go, oh, yeah, you know, like all throughout the day, random phone calls happen, crisis here, risk aversion, you know, all, all these things. And they go and say, well, how do we get better at that? Are there is there are there skill sets and competencies associated with dealing with the unexpected and working with what's at hand? Right. And I mean, just just for from a most basic communication perspective, we say things like we need to have better listening practices. Right. But we haven't always provided ways for students and participants and citizens to get there. Improv gives us a way to get there because improv puts you into a place where you're present and in the moment and you're not constantly going backwards in your mind and you're not constantly thinking forwards of what you're going to say next but you're actually really there dealing with the reality of the situation gotcha indeed we are um well let's let's go right into the book from there i know you were talking about uh improv as citizens And we do have uh, international listeners, so I want to just underscore that we're talking about being citizens of the world, and we might talk a little bit about the USA, but I think democracy is an issue on a lot of people's minds. And you wrote a book called Improv for Democracy. What does improv have to do with democracy, Don? Oh, so much, so much, right? So if democracy is creating as inclusive and engaging an environment for people to participate in decisions that affect themselves uh, in their lo- on local issues, regional issues, national and international issues, then we've got to go, like, how do people actually, bec- how do they end up with the identities they end up with as, as, as political peoples, as 
uh, how to, how, what training have they ever had in how to be uh, a good participant in a society uh, to open space for communication with others rather than just close it down, as uh, my uh, colleague in my discipline, Robert Ason, likes to say. And, you know, there's, there's just a lot of skills and competencies, I think, to be a citizen, not just to be uh, a business person or a nonprofit staff member or uh, someone in the life of an organization and not just to be a family member or a participant in a tribe, right, of some sort at the local level, but to say, okay, this is all of us, right? Uh, my, my definition of politics is how are we all going to live together? That's it, right? That question yeah. is is for everyone. It affects everyone. So, I think when we go back and we look, okay, there's been a lot written about what democracy should look like and deliberative democracies and the practices of democracies and institutions, right? And we go like, well, what, what's, how have people been trained? What, what kind of skills do they have? What have they been taught about being a good participant? Um, I think it's pretty lacking. And this isn't to say that there aren't tremendously uh, effective methods out there for doing this and just give you an example i've been involved uh for a number of years with uh, a movement called the national issues forums uh that promote dialogues they're they're evidence-based dialogues about contentious political issues like policing and black lives matter or immigration the u.s healthcare system right things like that it's based in the u.s uh, and in conjunction with the Kettering Foundation. And I love these methods and I think they work and I think they need to be embedded and scaled at a much larger level to help people realize being a citizen, being a citizen in the most expansive definition of the term, not the narrow legal definition, is uh, it, it's a maximalist thing, right? The minimalist version is go vote. And we got problems with that too, right? Uh, yeah. But beyond just voting, right? What else is there? What, how do we make people feel like they actually have voice, right? How do we, how do we connect the people, citizens on the periphery, their voices with the center of political processes and institutions like Congress or state Senate, right? Things like that. All of those questions are, are really pressing and there's ways to address them. But um, one thing I've noticed over time is that the the way a lot of our political discourse takes place is in a very serious tone. Nothing wrong with seriousness, but that's a game itself. It's a game to say, let's play the game of always being serious, always having a somber tone when we talk about things. Uh, joy shall have no part of this, you know. And so the register and the tone in which a lot of discourse takes place, I think, also impacts the policies that we get, impacts the approaches people take, impacts the how wedded people are to particular narratives about the political world, right, which end up creating public policies. All public policies are grounded in narratives. You have to tell a story. I'll give you an example. My friend Rod Hart uh, at University of Texas says, there's no such thing as war without a great deal of talk about war beforehand. Don't ever get that order wrong. You don't get war without talk about war. So let's go and look at the talk itself. What is happening in the talk, in the interactions or the lack of interactions that work people up to a state of let's go have war, right? And whether you think the war is right or wrong, I'm putting that off the table for now. What I am saying is it's worked up in communication. And so we need, I think, greater attentiveness to our communication practices, what people are saying, how they're saying it, the tone in which they're saying it, right? I can see somebody up on a soapbox getting really mad. Everything is angry and everything is blaming and insulting other people. It's all othering, othering, moralizing discourse, right? Yeah, that's going to be easy to work up, a, work us up into a state of war versus one in which people are angry and mad, rightly so, about things we should be mad about, but also go, hey, here's some moments of joy. Here's some bright spots we can find. Hey, you're a human being too. Can we laugh together? Just changing it up a bit, I think would affect, you know, the kind of policies that we get, uh, the, the, the problems structurally with politics across the nation. Can I give you a quick quote, Marion, that I absolutely love? And this, this, I, I want to give this because this was, there, there came a point I, when I wrote Improper Democracy, I, I told people, I was like, this is not the book I, I feel like I uh, should be writing for my career, but I have to write this book, right? Um, it just, it, 
the more I started reading from other people and seeing things, the more it all came together. So here's one of them, just one idea. James Kars, uh, who was at NYU, he's a professor of religion. This is a guy who I wish his ideas were more widespread than they are. He said, evil is the termination of infinite play. I'll say it again. Evil is the termination of infinite play. And he goes a little bit further with this. Evil is not the inclusion of finite games in an infinite game, but the restriction of all play to one or another finite game. And for me, mm. that summarizes the essence of what improv and democracy have to each other. Improv is a means of unfreezing us from fixed games, fixed and finite games. Improv is saying the world is one of endless possibilities. The world is one where we can create together. We can co-create new realities. There aren't just cultures. There's new cultures that we can create, right? And, uh, you know, just as an example of this, um, you, you've heard me talk about this guy before, but Barnett Pierce, the late Barnett Pierce gave this example in one of his books that I love where he said, Growing up, he always remembered entering into uh, he had two different grandparents' families, and one was very stoic and somber, and there was never much joy or right a, a very kind of fundamentalist that he grew up in, and he always remembered that tone and that feeling of being in that social world. And we go to the other grandparents' house, filled with laughter. You could hear the laughter bouncing off the walls all the time, and just these uh, this you know boisterous emotions and he, he just thought wow these are these were not fixed realities these are realities that came into being their particular games each of those household situations played a game in and of itself we can choose to play different games we can choose to play infinite games where possibility laughter joy are more accessible or we can go to what Carr says is the termination of infinite play, which which is his definition of evil. We think about any totalitarian system, fascist systems of government. What do they do? They try to make their citizens play one game. Here is the story. Here is the game. Uh, here is the ideology we're going to slap onto a society and say, this is all there is when there's always more, right? And improv gets us to go, ah, there's more. There's more I don't know. There's more to someone else. There's more I can see. I can push my peripheral vision outward and acknowledge that there's multiple realities, multiple possibilities, and the future can be creative. It doesn't need to just have a shut door with this game I'm being told is the way that human beings must play. I'm sure our listeners who are familiar with the Eastside Institute are hearing so many uh, threads, hearing the threads, seeing the threads uh, around play, infinite play, and why, why we have to play. And I'm going to segue into a, a brief break to hear a little bit from our sponsor, the Eastside Institute, and then we'll come back and unpack. I'm Melissa Meyer, Associate Director of the Eastside Institute. Welcome to All Power to the Developing. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. In each episode, we introduce you to some amazing performance activists, play revolutionaries, and developmentalists from around the world who talk to us about their creative grassroots efforts to build a better world. If you like what you hear, please follow and share the series. You can find us on Amazon, Spotify, and Podbean. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas. Like everything at the Institute, the growth of all power to the developing depends upon the people who create it and benefit from it. We hope you're one of them. Thanks for your support. And now back to our conversation. We're back. I'm here with Don Weisenden, the author of Improv for Democracy. And I think we can all agree that democracy is facing challenges uh, here in the US where we are and certainly around the world. There are a lot of uh, structural reforms that people are working on 
and trying to implement here in the US, uh, there are efforts to get rid of our electoral college, to open our primary voting process, to open voting generally, go to things like rank choice voting. But it seems to me that it would be very hard to implement these structural changes in the absence of finding ways to change the very culture of politics. I don't have to tell you, Don, how angry, scared, isolated people have become. People are literally afraid to talk politics with each other. Uh, so I'm thinking, how do we have a functional democracy if we can't even find a way to talk to each other, to have creative conversations that can lead to infinite play, to new possibilities? So. I thought it would be great to hear some of your thoughts about the relationship between improv, performance in general, conversation and democracy, or at least to continue that conversation head on uh, when it comes to uh, improv for democracy. Great, I think embedded in your question there, Mary, and you said the word culture, right? which yep. I think precedes the political change. There has to be cultural changes, culture, pl cultures plural uh, for there to be political change. That's really the way it's always worked, right? It, the politics is a result of cultural environments where people feel like one policy is better than another or right, certain ways of being are better than another. I just, you know, I think of several folks like Stacey Abrams, right? Came along as yeah. a powerhouse figure in Georgia, in the state of Georgia to say, we need to change the cultures around voting in this state and stirred up, you know, tremendous activism toward turning uh, the Senate in this last president, sorry, this last election, general election uh, in, uh, to, to her side in Georgia. And I'm not arguing for sides here. I'm just saying even one person has the ability uh, through documentary film, which she had as part of her effort and all kinds of different media and door-to-door -door activism, uh, conversation by conversation by conversation, that's how culture changes to begin with, right? Everything is the result of conversations that we, we have in our political world. So let's go, let's start there. Right, uh, with, with any kind of changes. At the same time, uh, you, you know, one of my favorite improv games in the whole wide world is New Choice. Uh, just that <laughs> game where you do something in an improv scene and you have to make a new choice afterward. And I think that rank choice voting, for instance, just to take one example, electoral reforms of various kinds, open primaries, those are, that's like putting on a megaphone to our political process, new choice, make a new choice. This is not working. We're knocking out such credible, outstanding voices in our in politics, uh, in uh, shutting down the possibilities for democracy by playing the game in a certain way. New game, please. Open primaries, rank choice voting, uh, you know, fil filibuster reform, whatever it is. Uh, these are calls for new games new games, new, new ways by which people are going to live together, my, my definition of politics. Um, so I, I think all these things get to go together. I think there is a, a lot of hope to be found where, where we can find it. We need to really find the bright spots as much as possible and cast a lens on them and say, okay, that's working there. Let's keep going with that. That was really the process of my book, by the way. I thought at first, oh, I got to, you know, it was amazing. I was thinking of this. I got to invent things. I got to, I got to come up with new things. And then all I realized is all I need to do, just like you do in an improv scene itself, is look outside yourself for what's going on and find inspiration there, right? Uh, I mentioned this to you before, but Detroit Creativity Project started by, you know, actors like Michael Keegan Key and others uh, has been do using improv workshops in the Detroit public school system after school programs, much like the All Stars Project, which many listeners here will be familiar with. And they're having tremendous success with that, right? Saying, here's a way to engage with people that's different. It's fun. We're going to do this together. And from what I understand, those programs have like a hundred percent participation rate from students. They're not yeah. going to classes during the day, but they're showing up at the improv mm -hmm. workshops afterward. Uh, from what I understand, so 
just those pockets you go, okay, new choices are being made. We can do that in our politics too, bit by bit gradually. But it is, I think we have to start at the cultural level. It has to start from conversations and culture if it ever hopes to rise to any status as a policy or something like that, right? I think to revert, to do it in reverse, to say, here's the policies we want is exactly the wrong process because as we know from decades of theory and, and conflict management and negotiation, especially, um, people have interests beneath their positions. You can say, I'm pro-life, I'm pro-choice, great. There, there's positions and now they're knocking heads just by arguing at the level, having a conversation at the level of positions. The moment you go, why do you, why do you have that position? I'm curious, please, right? Then we get down to, oh, I would, common, usually common values that we all have. I want for safety and I, I, I want people to feel like they're promoting life. And well, I want that too, of course, right? I don't want people dying, right? So you start, once you get down to the level of interest-based discussion, uh, especially through one-on-one -on -one conversations, there's more possibilities for finding common ground. We don't have to find common ground, but it's a better conversation down there than it is just, here's my position, here's my position. And into the gridlock politics that we just observe from scanning through any day on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, gridlock, gridlock, gridlock. Yeah. Also, by the way, those media sources, uh, speaking of games, they're they're part of the problem. They're part of the problem with the games. And I don't, know, I don't know if you remember, this is such a long time ago now, and this is a little bit of a US-centric example. Sorry for our international participants. We'll try to bring you into this. But the comedian Jon Stewart in 2004, years ago, went on that CNN show Crossfire. I always go back to this. And it was Tucker Carlson, and I can't remember, Paul Begala, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, just doing the typical, oh, here's my position, here's my position. No one listening. It's just about defending your preset views or the, the views that your salary supports, let's be honest. That's most of the media system. Here's my salary, and I can't say anything different because my salary requires me to say this, right? That's not a very good game. Uh, and he came in and said, this is not helping. This is hurting democracy, right? And I think what came out of that is that John Stewart was just saying, like, stop playing this particular game. There's other games we can play. Let's let's improvise in different ways. But the structure, the, the embedded... The embeddedness of the structures is a hard thing to overcome, but we've got to chip away at it one conversation at a time, one culture at a time, and just keep going. Well, perfect time, I think, for us to take a play break, because one of the things I love about your book is that it's filled with practical exercises, games, things that you can play uh, and use however you like in whatever setting you find yourself in. It's such a great manual. If you're listening to this and, and wondering, okay, this sounds great. I want to start making these kinds of changes. How do I do that? Don has given you a roadmap. So uh, Let's play a game, Don. Let's uh, do it. Something from the book. What about paraphrase passport? Yes. And I want to give full attribution for this. So uh, shout out to Yael. She, who at an AIN conference, introduced me to this exercise that she created. And I, I've always thought it's fantastic. It's entirely illustrative of what we're talking about in, in reduction. Great. So the way this goes is, uh, Mary and I, you and I are going to find something we completely disagree on. So, but we want it to be a minor issue. We're not going to go into big, major political issues. It's going to be a minor issue, like okay. I'm a night person, you're a morning person, that kind of thing, right? Are okay. you are you a cat person, Marion? I, I am. Ah, I'm a dog person. There okay. we go. There's our. It has to be a real life difference between us. Okay. So we find that first. Okay. So I'm a dog person. I'm a cat person. Uh, and what's going to happen, I'll, I'll go ahead and start. And I'm going to say we're having an argument about cats versus dogs. OK, make an argument. But you have to paraphrase back to me what I said. It's not word for word, but just capture what I said uh, before you respond to me. OK, and then whatever you say back to me after that, I must paraphrase back to you. I must try to capture what you said uh, to your liking. OK, it has to you go. Yep, yeah, that's it. I, you have to agree. I have to go. OK. I've got it before <laughs> I proceed with my response. Okay. So, okay. so here we go. All right. Okay. So um, 
you know, I love dogs. Dogs, I just have to tell you, dogs are doing something with their lives, right? We've got sheep dogs, watch dogs. Like they're really, they're productive members of society. They're doing stuff with their lives. I, I just don't see cats doing much, you know, like dogs have jobs. Okay, I hear you. You're saying that dogs are bred to do various activities to help human beings like herd sheep and uh, catch things and go on hunting trips. Is You've it, got it. Is that right? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is our cat is an excellent mouser and uh, we're having some issues in a very old building that we live in and he's caught, I'm not kidding, about I don't know, half a dozen mice over the last couple of weeks. So in my mind, having a cat means that you don't have mice. Interesting. So you're saying that cats actually do have jobs and there's the job of mouser, which is a word I've never heard before, but it's like mouse hunter. It's it's like a professional mouse hunter. Yes. And that's what your cat does. And it's yes. it's working out well for you. Very much so. Great. So now that I think about it a bit, let me let me just think because maybe you know there are dogs that are maybe a little more <laughs> they don't aren't as functional at the same time, but I I would still argue that uh, dogs are their disposition is just different, right? They're they just they're joyful, they're happy. You know, I kind of look at a cat and it kind of licks its paw and looks at me like I'm an alien creature. I just need more connection in my life. I see. So you think it's hard to connect with a cat. Um, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Well, I, I would say, and I don't mean to be rude, Don, but I would say that you don't know the ins and outs of, I know you're a communication specialist, but in this case, I don't think you really know how to communicate with cat. For example, uh, our cat puts his tail all the way up and the tail vibrates and shakes. And what that means is that he's excited and happy to see us. So I think it's about reading the signals properly because I sometimes think that dogs uh, are not discerning at all. Yeah, they'll just wag their tail, lick you. They don't even care who you are and if you like them or not, or if you want them around. Whereas a cat is uh, making some really important decisions about how they're going to be affectionate, when they're going to be affectionate, and with whom. So what you're saying is cats are complicated, complex creatures that actually have an elaborate communication <laughs> system, a system of codes that you yes. get to know as an owner, like the wiggly tail thing. Yeah. <laughs> and you actually do feel this interaction with your cat that I have not experienced much with cats. Maybe I need to do some introspection about that, but there's more, there's much more to that cat situation than, than meets the eye, it sounds like. Uh, and then some dogs are, are dumb is what you're saying. <laughs> and why don't we stop there? Dumb. Okay, so I first of all, for the dog lovers out there, full disclosure, I love dogs. Okay. So thank you so much. Uh, I, I felt a pull to just play for the rest of our time together, but... Can I, I just say, can I say really quick, I, I actually... <laughs> I haven't I done this example. Over. I haven't done this personally in, in this exercise before, but I genuinely learned a few things about cats I did not know in this conversation. And I think had we not done the paraphrasing, that's right. I, I you know, it would have it would be easy to bypass what you said. Right. Because we're all thinking in our minds what we're going to say next, maybe or right. There's things like that. Yeah, no, it's it's a beautiful exercise, and I hope that our listeners will make good use of it uh, in any way you can. So I'm thinking about our podcast uh, being all power to the developing, Don, and the issue of development, since that's important to us here at the Eastside Institute. Uh, 
I just thought we could spend a little bit of time on how you see improvisation relative to that, to an understanding of development as being able to see new possibilities and have the power to act on them. I love, love, love what you were saying about infinite play. And uh, I certainly think that's uh, one way to get to development is letting yourself play with everything. But how, how do you see that? What application uh, might development have when we're talking about politics in general, democracy in particular, and improv? Well, I want to start with, I love that when I became aware of the Eastside Institute through you and through performing the World Conference and a lot of the offshoots, you know, that these communities have, which you're a part and now I'm a part. Uh, I, I loved the language that was used and I love drawing from, I, I had studied Wittgenstein, you know, a little philosophical in grad school and my field originally was rhetoric, which is all about how people use symbols, words to influence and to capture the world and to motivate and to change right all of symbols or words symbols or images uh anything that makes us think of something else right is a symbol and there was such attention to social constructionism and symbolic development and growth that i i really resonated with it i had never actually encountered vygotsky before <laughs> i i read lois holzman's book and but i went oh that is just it's there's so many strains like this of which I've been a part in the improv part uh, that are critical. And I want to say development, the, the term development, we should think about a little bit because I think it's important and I, I'd be interested to know what you think about this too, Marion, but I don't see development as linear. I see development as it could be circular, it could be fractal. Development can occur in a lot of different ways, right? It's not Absolutely. necessarily stages that people must go through. Um, and also I think the word development sometimes, and I know this here's the international context, can be perceived in international settings as um, uh, sometimes even a buzzword that is, hey, we're bringing our views to you. You get with the program, you must develop, right? And I. I there's there's U.S. agencies that went to Russia and used that word, for instance. And I know from a, st a study I read on this by Scott that um, local populations there were like, "Ooh, we're skeptical. What are what are they developing? Are they forcing an ideology on us?" For instance, right? So just a lot of connotations around development. But the the way in which that term is anchored at the Eastside Institute, I love, which is development for going beyond your current capacities for growing flex flexibly, right? It's a commitment to flexibility, to saying, I don't know everything. I am not everything. There's other people in the world. I stand to grow well when I'm in the context of other people. That's the only way that growth happens. It's not, it's not just, there is individual growth, but that's really the result of being, putting yourself in different social contexts where you can grow. And perform. And I, I to tell you, Marion, the first time uh, I think we met, you used the word performance. And I was a little befuddled by it, actually. Like, oh, performance. Okay. You know, I'd studied Goffman and these folks who had used performance. And I think it was you and um, Kathy Salet emphasizes this too, that performance is not just a metaphor, it's literal. And I went, oh, okay. We are all performing. It's That's right. And I would use performing and communicating Analogously, I, I think those two terms can actually be put together. We are communicating beyond ourselves. We are communicating for growth. Um, one of the things that improv, improv does for us. And so, you know, just to go back again I, for that term, evil is the, is the termination of infinite play. For me, development is infinite play. It's the ability to say there's always other possibilities. We are never stuck. No matter how fateful the situation, we can always think in a different way. We can always learn from whatever situation that we're in. I love what you're saying about communicating for growth. And I, I think we could add communicating for infinite growth. Mm. Because I think that we often uh, think of development and growth in our lives as finite, as, as having a moment 
where we've arrived. And, That's right. And we stop growing. That's a more traditional understanding of, of these stages of development. So I love what you're saying. Um, I thought we could wrap up by talking a little bit about where does this go from here? Don, um, I know that we've talked a lot about blowing this up, Improv for Democracy, as an initiative to roll out at various levels of society, uh, whether it's a curriculum or at uh, community centers. And you and I, uh, this past weekend, co-led a class, a workshop for the Eastside Institute, where we began playing with this. But before we end today, talk to us about where you're taking this. Where does this go from here? What kind of conversations have you been having? What did you learn at our workshop? And yeah. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see where to go beyond this well, podcast. I'll tell you about the groundwork here, the calls to action, and more than anything, for those listening, the offer I and Marion and others want to put out to you as well, because we're figuring this out in process. And we should highlight, I think, Marion, that term that we had never heard before. Uh, we had this ESI workshop the other day, and we had people doing exercises just like the one that we did, Mary and I did there. We had this one called reverse trash talking that we literally just created about a, a week before the workshop where people, uh, it was based on a James Corden show segment I saw where you have to trash talk someone else, but everything you say, the content of what you say has to be nice and affirmative and appreciative. And it would just, it gave people so much cognitive dissonance <laughs> to do this. Just do Let's just do two exchanges. Let's do two. Okay, 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 go for it. Do you want to start? Sure. Don, I just have to tell you, this podcast is going to be so good. Marion, look at you. You're sitting there with your fancy, beautiful glasses. Look at over here and your commitment to community activism is outstanding. <laughs> It's so much fun. <laughs> and so people went back and forth like this for about four minutes and just they said, oh, my gosh, you know, just to be in that mode, people are often in the, the feelings they have, their their physiological state. But to have to say something nice um, really shook their worlds up, just something people are not used to. And that, that's what this is all about, shaking up the world, unfreezing and um also to go off just what was last talked about with development, I have this concept in the book called Transcend Your Physiology. Uh, it's based on a raft of research just about politics is deeply physiological. It's not just ideological. It's not about ideas and heads. It's about our, our state of being. And so the call is to transcend your physiological impulses, override them, grow, have new choices in other directions. So to go with the, the question of where to go from here. So the book is, uh, the groundwork for the book is, it is, uh, it's meant to be an A to Z curriculum for anybody who wants that on how to roll out improv for democracy. And I have three different levels. One is communication skills. The next is leadership and organizational skills. And the last is civic skills, societal skills. And they all go together. The argument is that these three things all actually go together. And each of the headings, the subheadings for the book is a different verb. It's a different practice, such as play multiple roles and viewpoints, shift your status, exercise narrative flexibility, uh, reframe the game, right? And I talk about this is what this actually looks like translated to practice. Here's some exercises to run people through the contours of this concept. So the most basic level I think this can be implemented at is as a curriculum in schooling, public, private schools, uh, higher education. It could be used in part of a class or a workshop as well. If somebody has a class that's engineered toward leadership development in some way, you can pull from that chapter, which I connect to adaptive leadership and you know theories from there. Uh, so it can be used in whole or part for those ways. But I also see a space for this in uh, things like public forums, town hall meetings, any time citizens get together to engage in some kind of uh, process leading to decision-making, 
I think this stuff can be introduced there. And Marion and I have actually done that. Uh, we had a town hall forum. There's a video. Might, we might be able to include the link with this podcast. Not sure, but where we had people of very different political opinions on healthcare uh, engage in some improv exercises beforehand. We really didn't even use the word improv that much. We just said, as part of the process here, uh, we're going to do a little warm up before we get talking to each other. And people were in a more joy joyful state as they came to those conversations. I think that's significant. Any moment where we can just change the tenor of the discourse and have people see each other in more hospitable ways. And the key phrase we got from our ESI workshop, I think it was, it was or Orally Harp. Yeah, that came up with it. Uh, kudos to her for this. It, it was make it hard to hate any place where that could be filled with hate very easily. People not listening to each other, invalidating and not recognizing the realities at play. Um, I think these kinds of exercises or concepts can help it make it harder to hate than usual. And I think that's one step ahead that we could all use uh, yeah. while talking about very serious issues where we need to make decisions that are inclusive and equitable. Yeah. I, I mean, make it harder to hate uh, is a world changing initiative for sure. So Don, where do people reach you? How do people reach you? Uh, people in organizations that are interested in this initiative and getting in touch, uh, give us a way to contact you. And we'll also put this on our podcast website. Great. So the invitation for everybody, first of all, is uh, one of my goals with this project is to embed and scale this work wherever possible. So if you see somewhere, maybe you're part of a school system where there's access to decision makers who might go, yeah, let's have a bunch of after-school programs using this curriculum or as part of some kind of community facilitation initiative, um, planning, you know, in, in urban districts where we might embed a little bit of this work, uh, dialogues, especially any kind of dialogues to bridge the divide, conflict management and resolution spaces, those kinds of spaces are ripe for this work. And uh, please do reach out. So you can reach uh, me personally at my email address, which is Don uh, period Weissenen, W-A-I-S-A-N-E-N -E at Baruch, B-A-R-U-C-H dot Cooney, C-U-N-Y dot E-D-U. That's really the best way to reach me overall. Great. And the, and, go ahead. Yeah, and the book can be found at SUNY Press, S-U-N-Y Press, or Amazon.com. Uh, it's why just Google, Google Improv for Democracy, and you'll find a copy there. Yeah, you beat me to it. I was going to tell people how to get your book. So now you know. And again, all this information will be on the podcast website. I can't thank you enough, Don. I could spend uh, hours talking to you about this because I have and I will continue to. Uh, you and I will continue our workshopping of this and invite everybody to join us in a global initiative, Improv for Democracy. Thank you for joining us today on All Power to the Developing. If you like this conversation, please like our podcast, subscribe, and all power to the developing. Until next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much. Signing off. All Power to the Developing has been brought to you in part by the Baylor Wolf Fund.